Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. With millions of undocumented immigrants residing in the United States, a shadow immigration policy exists, not to determine who will be admitted, but rather who will be detained and who will be prioritized for deportation. In this system, the president's power has perhaps never been greater or more controversial. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by two renowned immigration scholars and constitutional experts, Adam Cox from NYU Law School and Christina Rodriguez from Yale Law School. Adam, Christina, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you. It's great to be here. In the introduction, I mentioned the shadow immigration system. From your recent book, The President and Immigration Law, you mentioned that there's 22 million non-citizens in the United States and half, over 10 million are actually deportable. How is that possible? That's right. Nearly 11 million people are currently deportable from the country. And Christina and I think that understanding that fact is the key to unlocking the ills of our immigration system today. And in our view, as we articulate in the book, three enormous and important changes that took place over the course of the 20th century put us in a place where half of all non-citizens are living in fear of deportation. The first change was the rise and invention of a deportation state, making deportation a central tool of immigration policy. The second change was not legal, but bureaucratic. We built an enormous immigration enforcement bureaucracy that could enforce those legal commands on the books. And the third change happened when those legal changes and bureaucratic shifts collided with a demographic reality, which was dramatically rising rates of unlawful immigration during the final third of the 20th century. Why don't we go through each of those three, perhaps in reverse order. Christina, maybe you could start with explaining what this demographic shift is. How did we end up with so many immigrants who are here without legal paperwork? The concept of illegal immigrant is something that was developed as a matter of law beginning in the early 20th century by uh, the increased use of screening tools to exclude primarily Mexican immigrants from crossing the otherwise porous southern border. But the actual phenomenon of illegal immigration, large numbers of unauthorized migrants entering and then settling in the United States, is something that has its roots in uh, the post-World War II era, uh, but really took off beginning in the 1970s. Before the 1970s, the rise and fall of the so-called Bracero program, which was a guest worker program that brought tens of thousands of Mexican workers to deal with wartime labor shortages into the United States, uh, helped produce uh, nascent illegal immigration once that program was ended in the 1960s. But a combination of factors from the 1970s onward, uh, many of which are hotly debated, it's not as if we have a definitive explanation, combined to lead to a secular increase in unlawful immigration until about 
2007 when it reached its peak. And, and those factors include things like the relative youth of the population in Mexico, the underdevelopment of its labor market, the existence of longstanding family and social ties across the border, which itself helps to produce migration, changes in the law that made easy migration harder, not just the end of the Bracero program, but the shift towards a regime where there were limits on the number of lawful migrants who could come from Mexico, combined with the demand from our service sector and the construction industry uh, throughout the 1990s and the 2000s. And all of these things combined, along with variations in enforcement policy in the interests of American employers and politicians to give rise to this uh, demographic population that contributes to the shadow system that Adam just described. Those uh, sociological and demographic facts are incredibly important to any story. But as Christina mentioned, you know, one thing we believe is that the deliberate changes to the legal rules that structured migration also facilitated the creation of this large shadow population. And the, the two things that, you know, Christina mentioned, the, the termination of the, of the Bracero program. So you take a program that admitted several hundred thousand folks every year, and you tell them overnight that if you continue to come, your, your entry is now unlawful. That, combined with the introduction of quotas for countries like Mexico, turned a lot of migration that used to be lawful migration into unlawful migration. There's one other important factor that also contributes to the way we think we should understand the, this population, which is that uh, over the course of the last few decades, that population has become increasingly settled in the United States. It's not a population that comes and goes uh, nearly to the extent some people might assume or that what was once the case. And that also has been a function of legal choices and enforcement choices made by the U.S. government. There are sociologists who have documented that the difficulty of crossing the border and the penalties associated with crossing the border have led some migrants who come for economic opportunity to, to choose to remain, not least because they have family here, but also because the prospect of going back and forth has become too perilous and uncertain. So we have this large increase in unauthorized immigration. How does that translate into deportation or deportation numbers? Right. Well, the key to understanding that is understanding the structure of our modern deportation rules. And that requires going back again to the turn of the 20th century. So when Congress first began to regulate immigration in the late 19th century, deportation wasn't really a regulatory tool on the books. The system built initially was a system designed to screen immigrants by excluding them at the border. And the earliest immigration laws didn't even have deportation provisions. But over time, Congress added provisions that permitted executive branch officials not just to exclude people at the border, but to deport them from the country after they had been admitted and taken up residence. Now, initially, those deportation rules were very narrow and almost all of them came with lots of limits, like statutes of limitations that ensured that once a person became a long-term resident, they were insulated from the deportation power of the federal government. What type of statute of limitations were we talking about? If you were here safely for three or four years, then maybe you could be considered That's right. safe? That's right. The earliest deportation provisions actually said one year. So they allowed for deportation um, in certain situations, but only up to one year after a person's admission to the country. But 
um, amid rising anti-immigrant sentiment during the World War I period, those statutes of limitations were relaxed, first to three years, then to five years. And by the time you get to the Great Depression, almost all of them have been wiped out. And today, what that means is that non-citizens, even green card holders, living their lives for a long time in the United States are still subject to the deportation rules of the federal government. You mentioned that they were dropped around the Great Depression. Why was that? Was that to protect American jobs? Ostensibly, as almost always is the case with changes in immigration policy, you have, you know, that you have in American politics, both the concern about protecting domestic workers and also the perceived threats to the American way of life, right? So those threats, those perceived threats are often racialized threats. And in the wake of World War I, that led to some pretty dramatic changes in immigration law. The ones that get taught in American civics textbooks are the changes that led to the rise of the national origin quota system, right? Expressly um, national origins-based rules that restricted where immigrants could come to the country from. And these rules largely favored immigration from white European countries and restricted immigration, particularly from China and India and Asian countries. Yeah, so they favored immigration from Northern and Western Europe. They severely restricted immigration from Southern and Eastern parts of Europe. And at the same time, Congress passed rules or reaffirmed rules that completely prohibited immigration from basically all of Asia. Was this the, I'm sorry if I'm getting it wrong, the Chinese Exclusionary Act? Yes, the Chinese Exclusion Acts were actually the very first um, iteration of these laws passed much earlier, almost a generation or two earlier in 1882. So they'd been on the books for a while. They'd been joined by other forms of racial exclusion. Almost all of those racial exclusionary laws were targeting immigrants from Asia. But in the wake of World War I, it wasn't just Asian immigrants suddenly that American politics and political activists were pushing for the exclusion of. It was lots of immigrants from parts of Europe from which there were rising rates of immigration. At this point, what does deportation look like? Is it, is it done at the federal level? Are we talking about the local police officer or sheriff arresting someone and then driving them to the border? For purposes of understanding the rise of the deportation state, it wasn't just the you know, erasure of those statutes of limitation. It was also Congress's decision then to dramatically over time expand the kinds of conduct that could make a person deportable. So today the grounds of deportation are really broad and sweep in lots of, lots of folks. That makes our immigration system really probationary and puts lots of non-citizens, even those who are lawfully here in the country on green cards, under threat of deportation. So that's the legal change that looks really different today than it did in the late 19th century. The one thing I would add to the legal regime, which is central to the shadow system, is that one of the provisions in the code makes anyone who entered without inspection, that means entered illegally, or who has overstayed a visa deportable. Uh, so, so what that means is that the 11 million people Adam described are always deportable under the law. And that is one of the ways in which the shadow system empowers the enforcement bureaucracy. Uh, and so it, it's important to understand then um, how that enforcement bureaucracy functions. Uh, much in the way that Adam described the 
the development of the deportation regime, the enforcement bureaucracy also evolved over the course of the 20th century. And it was initially virtually non-existent. There were customs inspectors at the ports of entry. And in fact, a lot of inspection and screening and, and even deportation was handled at the state and local level. Massachusetts had a set of laws that it tried to employ to, to actually remove people from its jurisdiction. And the police powers the states had to screen goods and people allowed them to regulate movement. So the the legal reforms that Adam referred to take place after the Civil War in the late 19th century. And it's at that time when you see the emergence of a nascent enforcement bureaucracy. But again, the federal government initially is very dependent on states and localities for enforcement if it happens at all. Is that unusual, the way the United States uh, views deportation or allows deportation at any point? I don't think it's unusual today. Um, most states have uh, an immigration system that includes deportation as a tool. The United States, in some ways, is uniquely positioned with respect to the shadow system. That same system doesn't exist in other major immigrant receiving countries like Canada or Australia, which for various reasons don't have the same uh, demographic profile as the United States are the same problem with unlawful status. But the, all of the tools that we're talking about, both the legal tools of deportation and the rise of bureaucratic mechanisms for actually effectuating deportation have been developed around the world. I'm not sure how far back, but in, uh, in the recent past. Nowadays, it's federal employees, perhaps at ICE, who are executing uh, deportations. How, how did it begin? I mean, if you want to look at the deportation process, perhaps historically first. So before the late 19th century, there was not uh, an elaborate federal enforcement bureaucracy at all. In fact, most of the movement of migrants uh, that was regulated was regulated by states and localities using inspection laws, war laws, and other techniques. But once the federal government develops the kinds of rules that Adam was describing, the exclusion rules and the grounds for both exclusion and removal, they need its own, their own bureaucracy in order to enforce those rules. And initially, the federal government continues to rely on states and localities. But over the course of the early 20th century, it starts to build its own bureaucracy. The Border Patrol comes into being in the 1920s uh, to police the southern border, and that coincides with the rise of screening tools to try to regulate Mexican migration in particular. The key moment, though, in the development of the enforcement bureaucracy for our purposes, I think, is the creation of the Department of Homeland Security after the attacks of 9-11, when a lot of enforcement and intelligence functions were concentrated in a single department. And what's important about that uh, is both that the Immigration and Customs Enforcement was created as a separate agency within the Department of Homeland Security with its own confirmed head, thus reinforcing its centrality in the immigration system, and that the, the Congress, over the course of the last 20 years, has showered these enforcement bureaucracies with resources. It's somewhat expanded their legal authorities, but by giving them more money, uh, which translates into troops on the ground, which translates into in enforcement initiatives, DHS gets more resources than all other federal law enforcement combined. 
Uh, and the number of people who ICE is capable of deporting, the 400,000 number that Adam mentioned before, is greater than the entire federal prison population. And so it, it's both a combination of the resources that are given and then what the agencies do with them that underscores how powerful this enforcement bureaucracy is. We talked about deportation. What's the government been doing in terms of, of deportation numbers? Well, for a long time, not a whole lot. So historically, you know, the federal government really concentrated its enforcement resources on border building efforts. And the vast majority of people who were uh, forcibly removed from the country were people who were apprehended um, at ports of entry or in the act of crossing into the country. That all began to change in the 90s, um, in part because the federal government began to build partnerships to help it identify non-citizens who are in the country um, in violation of immigration law. What type of partnerships are we talking about? Yeah, so uh, it's critical to see that the big challenge the federal government faces if it wants to wield this deportation power is identifying, locating, and then apprehending a non-citizen who's in the country in violation of law. Historically, there weren't really particularly well-organized ways that the then INS went about doing that. So they would occasionally do what were known as area control operations. They would basically go through a neighborhood in an area or community where they thought there might be large numbers of immigrants living without legal permission, and they would knock on doors. Or they would do raids at farms or at work sites. Those enforcement efforts have you know, often garnered lots of high-profile news coverage, but they didn't actually result in the removal of very large numbers of non-citizens. But in the 90s, the federal government started to build partnerships with local and state law enforcement agencies with the goal of identifying non-citizens who were already in the custody of state and local law enforcement officials for purposes of transferring them to federal custody and putting them in deportation proceedings. Was the idea that this could be a more cost-effective means of dealing with people who are arrested for some other reason? Yes, absolutely. So the thought was, oh, if the federal government can piggyback on all of the information and personnel that the states have, Right? State and local law enforcement agencies have many, many more contacts with people in the communities. They have interactions and they make many more arrests than do federal law enforcement officials. And so if the federal government could use those law enforcement enforcement processes at the state and local level to identify non-citizens who might be deportable, then they could much more effectively deport large numbers of non-citizens. And that transformed the deportation system. It had different labels over time. First, it was known as the criminal alien program. Ultimately, it became rolled into a very high profile and politically controversial program known as Secure Communities. And Secure Communities was a big part of what facilitated the federal government's efforts to push deportation numbers all the way up to that 400,000 a year mark. And that brings us to perhaps the underlying theme of today's conversation. The shadow immigration policy drives from this huge number that forces the government in this case, over 10 million immigrants here illegally, the government is forced to triage and determine who gets the attention, who gets the focus of deportation muscle. That's right. That's a big part of what puts the president in the driver's seat with respect to immigration policy. And I guess I'd want to note first that historically, uh, we think it's not just that 
the system has been overwhelmed and lacked enforcement resources sufficient to meet you know, Congress and the executive's goals of fully enforcing the law. Instead, we think that in a, at times, quite deliberate way, the law was unenforced because the commitments that Congress wrote down on the books were not ones that anyone, or at least not any of the political elite in control of the process, really wanted to follow through on. So these conditions were not just the product of an enforcement failure. But today, they mean that presidents get to pick and choose whom from among this enormous pool of nearly 11 million people to target for enforcement. As we go forward to talk about the president's power, maybe we should take a quick look at what the Constitution had to say or what Congress's power is when it comes to immigration law. So the, the Constitution does not expressly grant any power to regulate immigration. The original Constitution gives Congress the power to make a uniform rule of naturalization, which is how you create new citizens. And over time, that and other powers that Congress has have been understood to give Congress the, the power to regulate migration by setting quotas, determining grounds of deportation, creating this bureaucracy that we've described. Uh, the the primary of those powers being the power to regulate interstate and foreign commerce. So in understanding the president's control over immigration policy, it's important to understand that as a constitutional matter, Congress has uh, extensive and extraordinary control over the movement of people in and out of the United States. The question for us is more, why is it that the president over time in various ways exerts such a large influence over immigration policy and over our lifetimes has been the central figure in the formulation of immigration policy. And some people would argue that the president has an inherent power to at least expel people from the country or exclude them at the border in the protection of the nation's national security. And there's a somewhat interesting legal debate about whether that is true. Uh, but we think that that kind of debate about formal legal powers is largely beside the point because the, the shadow system and the immigration code as a whole have created a reality in which the president has to exert control and has a framework that, that Congress has enacted through which he can exert control. And that is through making these enforcement choices that Adam has described. Uh, whether you agree with our view that the creation of that system was deliberate, where Congress wanted uh, as a de facto matter to delegate this power to the president, or whether you understand it as just the reality of limited resources and large numbers of deportable people, the fact of the matter is, is that the president has the power to shape immigration policy through a core executive constitutional power, which is the power to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And, and through the exercise of that power, you can get a, a maximalist enforcement strategy designed to instill fear in immigrant populations, or you can end up with a policy like DACA, an effort to shape enforcement policy to forbear from enforcement uh, against large groups of people whom the president and uh, the executive branch believe to be entitled to some measure of belonging in the country. Well, I think I'd be remiss with, with two such eminent scholars not to talk about DACA. But before we get into it, maybe you, we, we can flesh out these two, what sounds like two powers of the president. One seems to be maybe the throttle, which is 
how much gas does the president want to put on on deportation or enforcement of immigration violations? And then perhaps I'm thinking of the second one. I don't know why I'm on this car metaphor as the direction or the steering wheel. You know who to focus on, which which immigrants will get the target uh, on their back. Yeah, I actually think the, the car metaphor is helpful. At one point, we use the, the metaphor of speed limits, uh, where police don't enforce speed limits all the time, but they don't necessarily tell you where they, they will be enforcing them in order to uh, ensure compliance across the, the population. Uh, but I, I think that the the second, the steering wheel component that you described is of critical importance in understanding the immigration policy of the last three administrations, at least, if not more. And that is given the size of the the system, it has become uh, increasingly a matter of convention or practice for administrations to articulate enforcement priorities. And when we use the term president, uh, what we also mean to encompass is the cabinet officials and the bureaucracies that we've already described, where these decisions are being debated and and made, uh, often to Uh, filter high-level presidential priorities into day-to-day law enforcement. Uh, So this practice of setting enforcement priorities, determining which people should be prioritized for removal, has a long pedigree. And I think that the first of the modern guidance documents that are familiar to immigration people today uh, was issued by the Ford administration, um, possibly even before that. So you can look at those enforcement priorities and make judgments about what the substantive policy priorities of the administration are as a whole. For those listening for MCLE credit in California, the code for this talk is 201230. That's 201230. And now back to the interview. There are, I think, two helpful contexts or frameworks within which to understand DACA. The first is as an expression of the president's authority to control the immigration system. The early Obama administration sought to take the approach that I just described of articulating enforcement priorities priorities that would somehow be translated down to line-level agents who would be supervised by higher-level officials, and included in those priorities the types of people who would fall under DACA, people who came here as youth, as as well as other kinds of priorities. Uh, But that didn't bear fruit quickly enough, uh, either for uh, political officials within the Obama administration or for uh, the mobilized immigrants' rights community that wanted to see a shift and deportation happened more quickly. And and that was in part because of the difficulty that high-level officials like the president or the director of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement have in controlling line agents who, when they see someone who is formally removable under the law or that person enters the system and comes to their attention, follow the law enforcement instinct and, and seek to remove that person. And so because it was difficult to quickly translate these new enforcement priorities into action on the ground, uh, people inside high levels of the administration devised DACA uh, as a way of controlling the decisions of line-level agents to ensure widespread forbearance of removal against 
the, the dreamers in, in the case of DACA, and then it would have extended to other unauthorized immigrants had other initiatives been allowed to go into effect. You mentioned DACA's impact on individual agents. Can you give an example of what that means? Does this mean that DACA would overturn a particular agent's decision or force them to act in a certain way? Yeah, that's a really important question because answering it is what demonstrates how the shift to DACA really enabled the the president to control the scope of immigration policy. DACA was an application or is an application program. It uh, invites people to apply to citizenship and immigration services for DACA status, which is two years of forbearance from removal, plus the ability to apply for work authorization and, and some other benefits as well. And so the criteria that are laid out for eligibility for DACA are very, very clear. They mirror some of these old guidance memos, but they're very specific. And the idea is that someone who applies and is eligible uh, is likely to be granted DACA status. The individual agent who finds the application or is adjudicating the application still has discretion to deny it if there's some reason to believe that a person who is eligible might otherwise not be a good bet. Uh, But that discretion is not something that has played a large role in DACA precisely because the criteria are clear. The process is an application process where the expectation is that those who are eligible will be granted the status. And so by shifting the way that enforcement judgments were made, by allowing people to avail themselves of forbearance from removal instead of depending on someone happening to come into contact with the system and articulating the rules for it, the Obama administration was able to ensure that 800,000 or more people today uh, have DACA status. And the other important move that DACA makes within the bureaucracy that we also emphasize is that it, it shifted these judgments, which are normally made by ICE agents, or the applications could have gone to ICE agents, to Citizenship and Immigration Services, which until arguably recently was a part of the immigration bureaucracy uh, more focused on facilitating immigration, facilitating visa grants, facilitating people settling in the United States versus removing people, the enforcement arm of the bureaucracy. We've been talking about DACA. There was another program called DAPA that involved the family members of, of DREAMers. Uh, what, what was that program and why was that blocked by the Supreme Court? Adam? So the DAPA program announced by President Obama right after the midterm elections in 2014 helps us understand the political and legal battles over the scope of the president's power to shape immigration policy. That program was much bigger than DACA. It would have protected the parents of U.S. citizen kids and also kids who are green card holders from deportation. So rather than just protecting unauthorized immigrants themselves, it would have protected upwards of 4 million family members of U.S. citizens and green card holders. It went to a a trial judge, a federal district court judge in Texas, um, a judge picked by the plaintiffs because they thought he would be sympathetic to their claims, and he enjoined the program nationwide. So DAPA, unlike DACA, was never implemented. When did the Supreme Court get involved and how did they What issue did they use to resolve it? Yeah, so the Supreme Court got involved as the federal government appealed the case up to the Fifth Circuit and then to the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court actually didn't ever resolve the case. Instead, 
it divided 4-4 and couldn't issue an opinion or a judgment. Ah, interesting. So if they couldn't issue an opinion, then the lower court's decision stands. That's exactly right. When the Supreme Court splits evenly on an issue, then the lower court's judgment stands. That means that the Fifth Circuit's decision that DAPA had been unlawful stood and prevented the program from ever being implemented. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.